He's a 70-year-old man invited to preach at a week-long series of sermons for college students. Uh, I kind of feel bad for the guy because I assume that college students are going to fall asleep throughout the week or protest that he was the choice for speaker at a college. Uh, There's a huge gap of distance generationally between this 70-year-old Old Testament scholar and 18 to 22-year-old kids, half of whom don't know Zephaniah is a book in the Old Testament. But to my surprise, this old guy connects at a very deep level with college students. What enabled the late Dr. Dennis Kinlaw to bridge the generational gap of distance between himself and collegiate listeners? Empathy. He's a white guy, as you can tell, uh, born and raised in rural Indiana. But for the past 45 years, he has been pastoring a church in urban Jersey City, New Jersey. He's the only white guy in the church because he's the only white guy in the neighborhood. But his African-American and Caribbean black congregants love him because he has found a way to articulate with words their hopes and their hurts. How has Donovan found a way to bridge the ethnic gap of distance between himself and his listeners? Empathy. She's a a well-educated African-American woman brought up in an urban environment sent by her bishop to pastor a church in Iowa full of rural farmers. Her gender, her ethnicity, her education, her urban upbringing doesn't at all gel with the demographics of the congregation she's sent to. But the congregation grows because she connects with the people at a deep level. How do you explain that? Empathy. I was once a 23-year-old college senior, wet behind the ears, uh, sent to pastor a church about 15 minutes off campus. The average age of the people in the congregation was 125. Again, I was 23. Uh, These people had been walking with the Lord three times longer than I had been alive. What could I possibly tell them that they don't already know? Somehow, I had to get past the self-absorbed nose on my face and jump into the brown pointy-toed shoes and bib overalls of a 70-year-old man, the flowery dress and knee-high stockings of a 70-year-old woman. What did I need to do that? Say it with me. Empathy. In the midst of exile... Uh, when the church has lost her power and the gospel is no longer privileged, we don't need a preacher with eloquence or entertainment or excellence. In my estimation, the only pastor who's going to be able to preach with power in an age of exile is the one who has empathy. Empathy is the homiletical glue that connects God, the preacher, the people, and the text together. 
Empathy makes the homiletical world go round. And while it's probably the most important gift necessary for preaching today, it's, in my estimation, not the, one of the higher ones on the list of the pastor's sought-after gifts. I, uh, I threw out a, I have some proof for this, I threw out a, a Facebook, Twitter survey among my pastor friends, and uh, 58 of them responded to the question, what are two, of the th- two to three of the most significant gifts for preaching necessary today? Uh, 58 people responded. One said, great hair and skinny jeans. I threw that out. Uh, but out of the 58 respondents, only six cited empathy specifically. And of the 139 gifts mentioned, six uh, were empathy, six were compassion, which is kind of like empathy, for a total of 12 out of 139, which means that only uh, 8.6% of the 139 gifts mentioned that were important for preaching today had anything to do with empathy. And yet again, for fruitful preaching, it's probably the most necessary gift. Let's try to define empathy. Uh, Trying to find a, a universally agreed-upon definition of empathy is, is about as hard as spotting Bigfoot or a unicorn or Bigfoot riding a unicorn. <laughs> but let me throw out a few of these. Uh, let me just read the first one. You can jot down the other two. But these are, these are pretty good definitions. Uh, empathy is the capacity to imagine ourselves into another situation so that we think what they think and feel what they feel. It's probably easier to describe empathy than actually to define it, because it's kind of ambiguous. So let me describe it. Uh, I'm about 25 at the time. I'm an assistant pastor at a, a large church in a college town, much like this town. And just before my pastor gets up to preach, the senior pastor, I, he asked me to read uh, the passage, Mark 5, 1 to 20. It's the story of the demon-possessed madman running around in the nude, cutting and cussing. And, and as I'm reading this passage, I just begin to, to bawl like a baby uncontrollably in this very cerebral crowd. And I can't get through the reading of the passage. I have to take deep breaths, wipe my eyes, wipe my snot. I'm a mess. Ten minutes later, I get through it. It took me ten minutes to read that passage which is why the senior pastor said he'll never let me read before he preaches again. He said that. (laughs) What happened? I I just was overwhelmed with empathy for this guy in Mark 5. Not because I live in graveyards or run around in the nude, at least not in public. Um, I just empathized with uh, the isolation, the emptiness, the captivity, the bondage that he once felt. And I also empathized with the joy of being liberated through an encounter with Jesus Christ from all the demons that were having their way with us. I empathized. But then there are people in Scripture with whom I don't empathize. So I read about the Sadducees, you know, the religious Jews, wealthy elite, who, who made worship for poor Jews difficult. I don't empathize with them. I don't empathize a whole lot with uh, self-deceived, egotistical, manipulative King Saul. 
I'm a, I'm a white male of the 21st century. It's hard for me to readily empathize with a first century Palestinian Jewish woman who was caught in adultery and is about to be stoned to death. And the bigger question is, how in the world can we find the capacity to empathize with the diversity of people who listen to us preach? The Jews were carried off into exile forced into a multicultural environment, a religiously pluralistic environment. And so are we, Christian preacher in America. We're thrown into a multicultural milieu, uh, religiously pluralistic, and somehow we have to find the capacity to articulate kingdom realities for people not like us. That's hard. Some would say that we are experiencing an empathy uh, deficit and an apathy surplus in this generation. I may go back to this story. In 1963, some of you were around then and might remember this, uh, Kitty Genovese was at 3 a.m. heading back to her apartment in Queens, New York. She was attacked and stabbed to death. The crime took about 30 minutes. New York Times uh, said in an article that 37 people witnessed the murder, but nobody called the police. This led to the popularizing of the term bystander apathy by social psychologists. Let me share uh, another example that's pretty close, much closer to home for us. So Princeton University did a study where they brought together uh, Princeton Seminary students, people preparing for vocational ministry, people like us. And uh, a couple dozen students, seminary students, and, and the researchers read to them the parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable that contrasts the apathy of a priest and Levite from the empathy of a Good Samaritan who helped the guy on the road. After hearing this passage read, the seminary students were sent to another building to give a mini-sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. With few exceptions, almost every one of them on their way there encountered a homeless guy on the road and walked right past him to give their mini-homily on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some students actually stepped over the guy to get into the building. Apathy at its worst. But we've progressed from the 60s and 70s, haven't we? We're much more empathetic. Well, not according to the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Sarah Conrath and her team of researchers uh, found this from a study they did on empathy. We found the biggest drop in empathy after the year 2000. College kids today are about 40% lower in empathy than their counterparts of 20 or 30 years ago. Is there any hope at all? Barack Obama in 2008, during his presidential campaign, said it this way, there's a lot of talk about the federal deficit. I think we ought to talk about the empathy deficit. But all hope's not lost. Here's why. I have some science and theology I'm going to use to back this up. We human beings are not at the root of who we are, apathetic. 
We are naturally, biologically, physically, spiritually, at the core of our identity, more empathetic than apathetic. Now, Charles Darwin would disagree with me. This guy who talked about a world in which uh, there's a survival of the fittest, where it's a dog-eat-dog world of natural selection and the strongest survive. He believed in a world of homo self-centricus. That's who we are at root, depraved, self-centered. Sounds like a lot of branches of Christian theology, actually. But recent scientific research uh, has led scientists to push back on this and argue that we're not homo self-centricus. We're actually, at root, homo empathicus. And here's, here's uh, some of the evidence for it. In the last 20 or 30 years, uh, neuroscientists discovered, first in the brain of monkeys and then in the brain of humans, mirror neurons. Okay, I know it's, I know it's brain science after lunch, I get it, but just stay with me. Mirror neurons are sort of a natural biological way of initiating empathy between people. So it's basically looking at someone feeling something, and then because you're looking at them feeling it, you begin to feel it too. So uh, you smile, and a baby smiles back. Monkey see, monkey do. You go to feed the baby, the baby opens his or her mouth, and you open your mouth too as you're feeding the baby. You watch a, a boxing match on TV, and somebody gets hit with a right hook to the jaw, and you flinch. At the core of our biology, scientists say, is actually immorality, an empathy that's deeply rooted in how we are made. We are wired for empathy more than apathy, which gives credence to Genesis 1-2, which says we are made in the image of God, which means we not only have his creative capacity, we have his empathic capacity, too. As some of you might be thinking, you know, uh, I'm a little set in my ways. Empathy doesn't come easy for me. I don't even like people any day of the week, especially Sundays. Um, the, the cement on my brain is already dried. No change in me now. And uh, again, uh, a generation ago, scientists would have said, after, a, after childhood, your brain is already fixed. It's not going to change. You are who you are who you are. But now neuroscientists are saying that, man, the brain is plastic. That even into your adulthood, your brain can be rewired. It's plastic. And I say all this to say that even though at Genesis 3, apathy began to overtake empathy, the core of who we are, created in the image of God, we, we hear this in... Uh, Cain's question after he kills his brother Abel, you hear his apathy, am I my brother's keeper? But with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is the possibility that the brain, the soul, can be rewired so that we go back past Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 and 2 and live out the imago Dei that marked us at creation. The image of God in us can be restored, is what I'm saying, through the work of Jesus Christ. So science and biblical theology actually line up pretty well. We are made in the image of God and can be restored to the image of God. Uh, Wesleyans call this sanctification. I call it neurological pneumatology. Call it whatever you want, but it's sanctification, holiness. The greatest act of empathy is the incarnation of God. 
A God who uh, saw humanity in desperate need and became one of us to become one with us, not just for 33 years, but I believe there is to this day a first century Palestinian Jew seated at the right hand of the Father whose act of incarnation cost him forever. (laughs) That's solidarity. That's empathy. And while he walked the earth, there's this word in the Gospels that keeps surfacing to describe Jesus, his life and ministry. Splagnizomai. You don't have to spell it. It means compassion. Jesus was filled with compassion, so he spoke words. Or he was filled with compassion, so he touched people. He was filled with compassion, so he fed. Compassion is a lot like empathy. It's a deep in the bowels of the body ache that you feel because of someone else's situation so that you are moved to act on their behalf, even through the words of a sermon. Read Hebrews, okay? If you want to learn about the empathy of Christ, read the book of Hebrews uh, around every corner, around every turn. Well, what does this look like in in preaching? Okay, this is God. God is empathic, great. Uh, How does this apply to preaching? Let's look at two historical homileticians. John Wesley. Again, I think this is a life-size picture of him, too. It's like six inches. Uh, Wesley was, um, you know, an an eloquent Oxford don, well-educated at the University of Oxford, brilliant guy, born to Christian parents. Uh, His dad was a pastor. He was ordained in the Anglican church, a church that really catered well to the religious, wealthy, educated elite, and not so well to the poor. Uh, Wesley's friend George Whitfield invited Wesley to leave the Anglican church to go to do some field preaching to reach the poor, drunk, uneducated masses of English society out there who weren't welcome in the church. And Wesley called the practice of field preaching outside the church vile, (laughs) strange. Even 20 years into it, he said this, what marvel the devil does not love field preaching? Neither do I. I love a commodious room, a soft cushion, a handsome pulpit. What would cause an Anglican-ordained Oxford don to go field preach for 50, 50 years despite the hardships and the vileness of it? Empathy. What would enable a guy like Wesley to restrain himself from eloquent language and just speak in colloquial tone? Perhaps his most prominent preaching principle is this one. He says it often in his writing. I design plain truth for plain people. That's empathy. The impact of his preaching had nothing to do with his eloquence. Most people said he was not eloquent, but he was empathic. Another example, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Obviously, as an African-American, Martin Luther King could... Uh, empathize with other oppressed African-Americans. That wasn't hard for him. But what's extraordinary about King's preaching is that when he preached, not only blacks, but whites got the sense that this guy knows me. Now, many whites didn't admit that. Some did. In fact, when he's addressing a group of mostly white folks, uh, King uses the pronoun we. We. Uh, And in his dream speech, he talks about Jews and Gentiles, black men, white men, Protestants, Catholics, living together. He had this uh, amazing capacity. I call it uh, 
empathic contextualization to, to just sort of put the gospel in a container people can drink from. So he's, whether he's preaching in the north or south, to blacks or whites, at, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, or at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, King was empathically sensitive enough to communicate the gospel in a way that was not his preference or style, but in the way the people he was addressing needed it to come. It's called empathy. So how can we embody empathy in preaching? Let's, let's talk brass tacks. And then I'm going to give you some table discussion here soon. Uh, before we talk about actual practices, let me just talk about shifts that we need to make, okay, important ones. We need to make a shift from shame to grace. Uh, Brene Brown, who's written a lot about shame and vulnerability and empathy, basically says this. Uh, where there is shame, there cannot be the vulnerability necessary for empathy. That is, when you are full of shame about yourself, you're self-absorbed, you cannot empathically connect to others because you can't stand the vulnerability. Every human struggles with shame, but I think pastors are notoriously uh, behind when it comes to overcoming shame because we have set such a high bar for ourselves, haven't we? A high bar of ministerial success, a high bar of personal holiness that we never seem to hit. And when we don't sit, hit the bar that we set for ourselves, shame sets in. And when shame sets in, we become self-absorbed. And we don't empathize with people. We just start using them as pawns in our ploy for self-glory. So somehow we've got to move from shame to grace. We have to stop seeing ourselves through the eyes of those we serve and through our own hypercritical lens and see ourselves through the eyes of the God in whose image we are made. Self-empathy is a prerequisite for empathic preaching. That's what I'm saying. And then here's one. You might want to push back on this, maybe. We need to make a shift from prophet to priest. Uh, when I was going through my education, my professors talked a lot about the preacher being like a bold prophet who communicates uh, a holy God to sinful people. Be a bold prophet. Be a bold prophet. But that's just one side of the homiletic coin. We're not just called to be a bold prophet who represents a holy God to sinful humanity. We are also called to be an empathic priest who represents sinful people to a holy God. What I'm saying is that the words of our sermons must not only capture prophetically the will and the way of God, it should, but it must also capture authentically the hopes and the hurts of the human race. The preachers who impact me most are not the most eloquent, not the most entertaining, but the most empathic. While they're preaching, I not only get truth about the will and the way of God, but they voice for me in their sermons realities that I can't articulate but feel deep in my soul to be true. We need to be more like a priest as well as a prophet. All right, let's talk about some, some practices. <clears throat> Go to their turf. That's good enough for Jesus. It should be good enough for us, right? End of discussion. Uh, 
I'm going to say a couple other things that might rub you the wrong way. One of the worst things that I think has happened uh, in pastoral ministry, and now I pastor pastors, so I think about these things, is the specialization of the pastoral role. So you have the preaching, the teaching pastor, you have the executive pastor, you have the care pastor, you have the parking lot pastor, I don't know, whatever you do, <laughs> campus pastor. Uh, and what I think that's done is, it, is it, it commissions one on the team to go and be incarnational, go onto the turf, uh, the workplace, the school, the homes, the nursing home, the hospital. Go, go visit people on their turf. But it's usually not the preaching pastor who does it if you're in a large church. And even in some mid-sized churches, many of us, I used to say this, I don't have time to visit people. I had a church of 150 at the time. But what it does is it locks that preacher in a closet for 40 hours in the week. And he might get a, an exegetically rich, rhetorically eloquent message to share with the people but it won't be empathically connected to the people. What I'm saying is that the same person who visits and gets on the turf of other people actually should be the one preaching as well. Get out of the office. I remember when uh, the church I pastored tripled in size in about seven years, uh, not because of my eloquence, don't say amen, but maybe in part because I had some empathic connection to the diversity of people God was bringing us. And I made a terrible mistake in that season. I locked myself in my office because I had to get a lot of administrative stuff done and the preaching bar went higher and I had to say it better. And I remember during that season going out to preach to my people and it used to feel like I was sitting down having a living room conversation with brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews. But now when I'm preaching because I'm not living among the people, I'm, I'm, uh, I feel disconnected. What I'm saying is true, it's just not empathic. I lost my passion, my mojo. So I started to go back out on their turf. Uh, sitting with people in pain on their turf is the best empathy inducer there is. The best preaching course I had in seminary was not a preaching course. It was supervised ministry as a chaplain to hospice patients. Not only did it raise my pastoral care bar, it raised my preaching bar in ways I didn't even realize at the time. Let's talk about uh, doing a listening campaign. Uh, this is where you gather around you five to seven people uh, who are pretty homogenous, maybe uh, young moms in their 30s, ethnic minorities in your church, uh, uh, people who are unemployed, senior citizens in their 70s. And you gather them around you and you just, in a focus group session, just ask them questions about what it's like to be them. Figure out a creative way to do it. What are your hopes and hurts? Uh, give me some feedback on the preaching in this church. Give me some input into the future preaching of our church. Lori Carroll wrote a book called uh, uh, Transformational Preaching in which she surveyed a bunch of pastors, and, and I remember this statistic. Uh, only one preacher in 100 has a formal process for inviting input for future preaching and feedback for past preaching uh, into their habits. Your people will teach you how to preach if you let them. They will. 
better than any seminary professor. Don't say amen. Be the odd duck out. Be the odd duck out. So uh, this makes for great preaching, I think, is when you're reading a passage, don't just identify with the hero. If you're reading the life of David, don't identify with the hero. That's easy. Everybody does. Try to empathize with the villain. Saul or Goliath. Um, Don't just read the autobiographies of people you already like. (laughs) Read an autobiography from a politician you can't stand. Hillary's got one. Trump's got one. Bush has one. Uh, I don't know. Obama's got one. Read people you don't like. If you can empathize with people you like least or are least like, you'll hit the ball out of the park with empathy. Be the odd duck out. I, uh, all of us probably have sort of a profile of a person in our church who is the, the most significant empathy barrier for us. For me, I, think I wasn't born and raised in the church. I came to Christ late through uh, drug addiction recovery, teen challenge. So uh, the hardest person for me to connect to in the church was that longtime Christian who'd always been in the church. And, you know, kind of like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother who was always trying to keep younger sons from coming back to the father. I just struggled with people like that. But instead of leaning away from them, if I lean toward them, maybe I can learn to empathize with them. (laughs) Because if I can empathize with them, I can empathize with anybody. All right. Always look I. How many of you were teenagers in the 80s? Who said that? Miyagi, Karate Kid, Daniel Sun. Look I. Always look I. Uh, Going back to what I said about mirror neurons. Uh, When we see someone in pain or in delight, when we see someone experience something, we automatically, in our bio, bio, biology, empathize with that person. It's a great gift for preaching. So if you are preaching, but you are more into your manuscript than the moment, you will miss empathic connection because your people are giving you cues every time you look in their eyes. Some of you are telling me, get done. I see it. And as you're, as you're looking into the eyes of the people to whom you preach, they're, they're, you're reading them, you're discerning, you're feeling with them, and you're adjusting what you're saying and how you're saying it without even realizing you're doing it. But if you're stuck on your manuscript, you miss the moment. Uh, so I, I encourage preachers to devote 25% of their total sermon prep time to internalizing the message, praying through it, getting it ready, practicing it out loud if necessary, so that when they stand up and deliver on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever, they can look into the eyes of the people to whom they preach and have an empathic connection. So if you have 10 hours to prepare your sermon, write it in seven and a half and spend two and a half on internalizing it. Your people will love you for it and you'll preach better, guaranteed. Consider multiple vantage points. We're going to talk in a couple minutes, two more. I don't know if you've seen the movie Vantage Point uh, in 2008 with Dennis Quaid and Forrest Whitaker where uh, there's, a, there's a, an assassination attempt on a president and the movie explores uh, four or five different vantage points uh, that looked on at the event. So five different people who saw the attempted assassination and the movie tries to uncover the crime scene based upon those five vantage points. 
I think that's a good model for preaching on hot topics. You name the topic. Sexuality, uh, politics, abortion. So often when we preach on topics, hot topics like that, we fail to take into consideration the, the diverse vantage points of the people in our congregation. So we quickly jump to the card-carrying Christian answer. Now, I'm not saying, that the, you know, I'm saying the, the Scripture should have the primary voice. It should be prime, absolutely. But until the people to whom we preach feel like we get them, they might not get God. So we have to be fair in articulating not my experience, not the ideal experience, but their experience. And considering a topic from multiple vantage points so that they say, this guy gets me, and then they might get God. I... Uh, I was at a, a basketball stadium, professional basketball stadium, uh, some time ago, years ago now. Uh, internationally known preacher was preaching on the topic of abortion. I didn't know that was going to be his topic, but that's what he preached. And in his sermon, everything he said was true. I agree with everything he said. And every man in the congregation who'd been a Christian for a while would have agreed to. Uh, but he didn't seem to me to consider the vantage point of a woman in the crowd, probably many of them, who had dealt with the regret of abortion. And if I was a woman who had had an abortion listening to him preach the way he was preaching, I would have ran out. Most of the women I know, all the women I know, inside, outside of the church who've had abortions, and I know a few, uh, none of them need help feeling shame or regret for their decision. None of them. What all of them need help with is the grace to move on past the regret. And he just didn't offer that vantage point. Jesus came from the Father full of truth and grace. So will the Christian preacher. Last one, probably the most important practice, I think, for cultivating apathy, uh, empathy Sorry, in preaching. We've got enough apathy. Uh, is this one. Have conversation meals. You know this. Uh, Throughout the history of the world, the way to build empathic bridges with people different from you is to sit down and break bread with them. You know this. It's all over the New Testament, Old Testament too. Um, and, and it's not a power lunch. Let me, just, let me just sort of throw out this caveat. It's not a power lunch where you try to recruit someone to work in children's ministry so you already have an agenda. That's not what I'm talking about. No, this is a lunch where you come with questions to probe that person's hurts and hopes, dreams and disappointments, get to know them, what it's like to be them. And maybe it's that person with whom you have an empathy barrier. Uh, there was a guy in my church, I, I was 31 years old, just went to this church, uh, fresh out of seminary, Pennsylvania. 70-year-old guy, uh, I, didn't even get a, I didn't even get a chance to, to like offend him. Like my first Sunday preaching, he sat in the back like this. My, by my third Sunday, when I got up to preach, he was walking out of the sanctuary to go to the kitchen. Uh, he resigned from every ministry, and I still hadn't done anything to offend him, I don't think. But he was one of those guys who, who, uh, who wanted the church to be like it was back in the heyday, back in the 70s. That was his prime. I did not. He wanted the pastor to wear a suit and tie. I did not. He, wanted, he loved Southern gospel music. I did not. Does anybody? 
we were, we were worlds apart in so many different ways. Uh, and a mature pastor that I was, I actually distanced myself from him. And then God, I think through my wife, reminded me that when you're ordained to ministry, you don't have the privilege of picking and choosing who you love and pastor. You love and pastor all the people that God's given you. So I went to lunch with him. I asked him questions about his upbringing, about the church, his political views. I just asked him everything I could think of. And we, we wouldn't agree on much, especially in terms of church and politics. But he told me about some of the pain of his past, his disappointment as a young man. I got to see into his work ethic and other qualities about him that I admired. We didn't become best friends. But I found an empathic connection to that guy that I hope came out in my preaching. Because if you're angry with people or apathetic toward people, that will come out in preaching too. They'll sense it. And they'll sense empathy too. Well, let's, uh, let's have some table talk, okay? In pairs or in threes, okay? Twos or threes, you can answer whatever question you want to answer. Which person or group in your church is the biggest empathy barrier for you? Don't use real names, just profiles. And then this question, maybe you're sitting with a person, I don't know. Um, which empathic practice do you, uh, do you most need to immediately employ? So going back, uh, going back here, which, which one of these do you need to start right now to cultivate empathy in you through your preaching? Okay, go ahead. Where was the empathy for those who like Southern Gospel preaching? There is none. <laughs> Thanks, Captain Conviction. Thank you. 
and then I'll, and then I'll let you come on up. Hey, one more comment. Great discussion. Uh, piece of advice, go ahead and text that person with whom you have an empathy barrier and initiate a lunch or breakfast. There's homework. Um, and keep this image in your head, method acting. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, when he was playing the role of a Native American in Last of the Mohicans, and he does this with a lot of his roles, he actually, throughout the whole shoot, he lived in the woods uh, to, and lived off the land. He only ate what he could kill during the entire shooting of that film uh, so that he could uh, go through some empathic immersion, character, method acting. Now, I'm not saying that you should method act. What I'm saying is keep that image in mind uh, when it comes to how deep you go into the lives of your people. Empathic immersion into the lives of the people to whom you preach will make your preaching powerful.